go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 15 this morning. We've been making our way through the very end of the Gospel of Mark, and as we've seen over the last few weeks, there are six different roles that Mark uh, presents Jesus to us in as he goes through the Passion Week. And um, today we're going to be looking at the role of the crucified Son of God. When I was 17, shortly after I'd gotten my driver's license, I remember this trip I had taken to northern Wisconsin. And uh, like you might expect some young, rebellious 17-year-old, I was driving quite fast in my Ford LTD station wagon. It was not a race car by any stretch of the imagination, but I treated it like one. And next thing I know, I have the red and blue lights in the back flashing and being asked to pull over, and so I did. And I think he clocked me at like 70 miles an hour on this old back gravel road, just driving nuts, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't smart. So I got my first speeding ticket, and um, I just remember when I got home and having to tell my dad that I had gotten a speeding ticket, and he didn't say much, I just, just had that look in his face, you kind of knew that he wasn't, wasn't happy. And that was pretty much the last I heard of it. He never really, he talked to me about it, you know, talked to me about the dangers of driving that fast and how I have to be responsible and and all that. And he really didn't say much more to me than that. But I found out a number of years later that because of that one speeding ticket, my dad's insurance company dropped it. My dad had never had a speeding ticket in his life. We had one accident that I know of that my dad was in, and it was when some young kid had darted out in front of him on a bike when we were all heading to breakfast one morning and we had kind of hit this young boy but my dad had never had a traffic violation didn't have a speeding ticket nothing you know but his insurance company dropped him and he couldn't find another insurance company because of having a young teenage driver on his policy and there was finally he found one company that would provide a policy for us and I don't know all the details but mom said that the costs were through the roof significantly higher and it's funny because as I think about that you know my dad never said anything to us um, he just took it he took care of the, the monthly payment didn't come back at me and say well you really screwed us over now you can't drive you know or now I'm gonna have to charge you for this you know he didn't come back on me at all and I've told you before that my dad and I didn't have a great relationship at that time either you know we would fight a lot and so there's a lot of tension and I'd say 99.9% of it was me, and the other 0.1% was me. So um, it's just its remarkable. When I heard that, and I thought, wow, you know, it reminds me a lot of what Christ did for us, because here, you know, I created what I want to say is debt. You know, my dad expected me to um, be safe and drive appropriately and not, you know, jeopardize um, the insurance we had or even put others. I mean, had I injured somebody or hurt somebody, um, that would have come back on the family and dad and, and all that. And yet, to not even say a word, to not make a big deal out of it, just to say, you know what, I'm his dad and I'll take care of it. And he did. You know, I, I, think, I, I think I paid the fine, but dad took care of everything else and never made a, a big deal out of it. And so when I think about that and I think about our passage this morning, we're looking at the crucified Son of God. And basically, the bottom line is this, and you, you all know this, that Jesus Christ took upon himself our sin and paid the debt that we owed so that we wouldn't have to. And we're going to see that reflected today. Now, we're going to cover some stuff today that's a little bit hard because we're going to talk about crucifixion. We're going to put that in its proper context. But we're in Mark chapter 15 today. 
Mark chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 20 through 26 to start. We know that this is after Jesus had been before Pilate. He had been condemned to death. Pilate was now going to be handing him over to be crucified. And it says in verse 20, After they had mocked him, this is the soldiers, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull, or place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him, and they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Now it's been claimed that crucifixion is probably the most brutal and horrific method of execution ever devised. It was invented by the Persians, and then the Romans actually took that and perfected it. It was intended not only to kill the accused, but to make their death as miserable as possible by maximizing pain and suffering. It wasn't just enough to execute. You know, here in the United States, when we execute somebody for capital crimes, the emphasis is placed on a humane death. You know, they many places have banned the electric chair and have gone to um, using drugs to simply put the person to sleep and stop the heart to make it as humane as possible. Well, it was quite the opposite in Jesus' day because crucifixion was to be this public humiliation that took place. It was designed to strike fear into anyone who saw it. And so it was pretty horrific. It started with what we see here, which is where they mocked and then began to um, whip those who were going to be crucified. This flogging, they used these whips embedded with these tiny iron balls and pieces of bone on them and the ends tied to a leather thong, throng. And as they would strike the body, it would, be caused, it would cause bruising of the skin and then it would cause the skin to break and begin to tear. And I would try to spare you some of the worst parts of it, but it ultimately would leave the individual with bone showing and internal organs often showing. It was designed to, in essence, make the individual go into shock. Some didn't survive the flogging alone, but the Romans learned to adjust that and learned how much the typical human body could handle because they didn't want you to die before the crucifixion. So the whole point was not to kill you with it. It was to bring you right up until that point so that they could still crucify you. So it was intended to bring you right up to the point of death or close to it without actually killing you. Again, primarily to torture, to cause significant pain and suffering, but also to scare others as they would look on. After that, the condemned was then expected to carry his own crossbeam. We know that with Christ. The crossbeam was the part that held the arms. They would tie it on the shoulders of the victim, tie his arms up to it, the beam weighed about 100 pounds, and then they would make him walk to the point or walk the place of crucifixion. Part of the reasons they tied the arms up was so that when they would stumble and fall, which was inevitable, they couldn't catch themselves. Typically, they would stumble forward, fall on their face, their front. That was all part of the process, too. Further humiliation, further indignity, further pain and suffering. We're told in verse 21 
of our passage this morning that Jesus was so weak that he couldn't carry the crossbeam itself. So they found a man, Simon of Cyrene, to carry it for him. This must have been an individual that was fairly well known in the church because it says that he was the father of Alexander of Rufus, which means that Cyrene, or Simon of Cyrene probably was a Christian ultimately in the church at some point since he was well known. So likely found himself accepting Christ after this encounter with Christ. Once the crucifixion site was reached, they were nailed to a cross, seven, usually seven inch long nails that were driven through the wrist. The idea that it went through the palm is unlikely. Went through the wrist, and part of the reason it went through the wrist was because it couldn't support it through the hand. It would tear, but also because they wanted to sever the nerve, the main nerve that's there, which would paralyze the hands. And so they would drive the nails through there. They would then take the feet, likely probably put them on the side of the cross and nail the nails through the heel to the side of the cross. Some think there may have been a platform and they put it on the platform, but some of the evidence, the only real evidence we've ever seen is one individual who's crucified and the nails went through the side of the ankle into the side of the cross. That's probably what they did with Christ. But part of the reason for that, obviously, was as that individual was on the cross, he would die of asphyxiation or suffocation. They wanted to make it so that he could still lift himself up, so as the arms would begin to get tired, the shoulders would dislocate, then the elbows would dislocate, and then all the weight was on the chest, which would now make it difficult to breathe. They didn't want him to die quite yet, so they wanted to give him some leverage, and so they would nail the feet or the ankles so that they could at least still push up with the legs to breathe because most people would continue to do that, trying to stay alive or trying to, I mean, they're suffering. So again, it was all designed to make this as long of a process, as difficult, as torturous, as cruel as it could possibly be. Now, the average person would only last one day, maybe, 24 hours, maybe a couple of days. If it got to be longer than that, then they would ultimately go over and break their legs. Why? So they couldn't lift themselves up anymore. We know that with Christ, that was a case where they didn't have to break his legs because he had died prior to that. So as I mentioned some of these things, I want you to reflect on just two things for a moment. The first is that this is the Son of God that's up on the cross. This is the Son of God who these soldiers had mocked. This was Emmanuel, God in the flesh, the scriptures tell us. Everything that exists was made for him, Paul tells us, through him, by him, for him. And yet here he is, the God of the universe, allowing himself to be struck, to be beaten, to be tortured, to be mocked by these soldiers. Basically suffer and die. I'm struck by how nonchalant and how business as usual these soldiers are. You know, they're casting lots. We know that they were sitting down to watch the crucifixion in another place, basically. That's what they would do. They would sit and watch. It's a spectator sport in some respects. I wonder how many of them might have trembled in fear if they had realized who it was that they were doing this to. We know it all now in hindsight. But what's remarkable about that is that he was allowing this to happen. And that's the second point, second thing I want us to focus on. No one forced Christ to do this. Another remarkable thing. John chapter 10, verse 17 says this, 17 and 18 says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. Did you catch that? I 
lay down my life on my own initiative. No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my, mom, my father. We also see this reflected when, Mark, or when Jesus is praying in the garden, Mark chapter 14. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Lastly, Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. Jesus himself is responsible for giving up his spirit. When he dies, he says, or I'm sorry, when he dies, Matthew says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He yielded up his spirit. So who was in control of this crucifixion? Certainly wasn't the Romans. It was Christ. He allowed it to happen. He gave up his own life. He was in control. And again, that's just remarkable to me that the one who created everything, the one who told Pilate that he could have called down 10,000 angels to rescue him, didn't. So the first point is that Christ gave up his own life Nobody took it from him. The world, I suppose as they look at it, would look at it either as a defeat. Back then they certainly would have. They took this blasphemer and they put him to death. It's not the way that we should see it, obviously. Christ didn't see it that way. Now we may, have to, we may ask the question, you know, why, why this way? Why would Jesus have to suffer the way they did? Why not just have him put to death? You know, scriptures doesn't really answer that for us. It just basically tells us that someone had to die for the sins of the world, and it had to be God himself. But why such a brutal, torturous method? I'm going to speculate a little bit. Think about it. It's hard to find a place in the world that doesn't know about the crucifixion of Christ. Sure, you have those areas that are secluded, but you can go to China, you can go to India, you can go all over Europe, you can come here, you can go to Canada, go to Mexico. Almost everywhere you go in the world, you may not find every individual that knows of the crucifixion of Christ, but most cultures have some recognition and understanding of this man named Jesus who was put on a cross and crucified. That's important, because that's the basis of our salvation, is it not? Had Christ been simply taken off privately, condemned and killed quietly, nobody knew, it would not have created, I don't think, the recognition that is necessary for the spread of the gospel. This was a, I'll call it, and I don't mean this in a good way, but a spectacular event. One that ultimately would shock the world. And it has. Second point, the Son of God refused to save himself for one purpose, that he might save us. So he not only went to the cross himself under his own control, but he refused to save himself once he was there so that he might save us. I want you to look at verses 27 through 32. We'll walk through it here. But 
when we combine Mark's account in the Gospel with the other Gospels, we see that there are four different groups that mock Jesus. But what's interesting about it is there's the same theme that all four mock him with. And as we think about the, the way that, the, that God writes the Scriptures, um, there's some literary genius to it. And we have to pay attention to these things. And the fact that all four of these groups mock him with the same theme, tells us that we should pay attention to that theme. And so, the first group are those who came to watch the crucifixion. Verses 29 and 30 of um, Matthew 15 here. I'm sorry, we'll start, well, I'll read 27 to 32. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their hand, or their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to be um, destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way the chief priests along with the scribes were mocking him among themselves saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. The ninth hour, Jesus cried out, and we'll get into that in just a moment here. But you have these four different groups of individuals. The first that I want to touch on is the crowd. You notice in verses 29 through 30, it says, Those passing by were hurling insults or hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. Look at what they say. Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross the second group the scribes verses 31 through 32 notice what they say in verse 31 in the same way the chief priests also along with the scribes were mocking him and they said what huh he saved himself or I'm sorry he saved others but he cannot save himself notice the theme that's developing here one saying, come on down, save yourself. The others are saying, he couldn't, or he saved others, he can't save himself. We see this theme developing here. They also called on him to come down off the cross so they could believe in him. In other words, they were asking him to perform a miracle in verse 32. Go ahead and come on down. Prove to us you are who you say you are. The third, third group of people were those that were crucified with him. We know of two robbers. There were probably likely others that were crucified as well, but... There were two thieves on the cross, one on the left and one on the right. Verse 32, it says, Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Luke records that they were hurling abuse at him, and here's what they were saying. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The last group is recorded in Luke, but not here in Mark. And it's the Roman soldiers that were around him. Luke chapter 23, verse 36 and 7 says this, The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So we have these four individuals, or these four groups of individuals, all repeating the same thing, which is basically, Save yourself! Go ahead, save yourself! In the meantime, save us as well. In a mocking tone. You see the irony in that? They're telling Jesus to save himself, thinking clearly he can't do it. There's nothing he can do. And so they're using it to mock him because he obviously came to save others. 
he made that pretty clear. The fact that even the scribes and leaders are saying, well, he saved others, that was a mocking thing, knew that that was his mission. It was pretty clear. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. They knew it. They didn't believe it. And so here they are mocking him, telling him, go ahead, save yourself. But what's interesting about that, it wasn't Jesus' lack of ability that prevented him from saving himself. Remember, he told Pilate, you realize what I could do? All i got to do is say the word. You guys are all toast. It wasn't Jesus' lack of ability that prevented him from saving himself. It was the fact that he came to fulfill God's redemptive plan and secure salvation, not for one, but for many. Paul makes that clear in the book of Romans. The many were saved because of one that chose not to save himself. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus did not save himself when he could have because he recognized my life is a ransom that must be paid to save many. In John chapter 5, verse 13, he said to the disciples, Greater love has this, or has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friend, or his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And so Jesus is up on the cross. I would imagine that every bone in his body, every muscle in his body, every ounce of human will that he had wanted to come down off that cross. But there was a greater cause that he was committed to. Giving his life as a ransom for the many. And so Jesus died on that cross for us because that's what it took to save us. Nobody really understood that back then. So they mocked him. And ultimately, Jesus did not save himself that day because his goal was to save us. The Son of God also bore the weight and consequences of our sins so that we wouldn't have to bear it for ourselves. That's my third point this morning. We look at Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. The Son of God bore the weight and the consequences of our sins so that we would not have to bear it ourselves. It goes along with our salvation, obviously. Verses 33 through 39. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. The Gospel records six things that Jesus actually said from the cross. It's actually a pretty fascinating study. Mark really only records 
one of them here, and it's probably the most difficult one to understand. It's the one that scholars debate the most, argue the most about, disagree about the most on. And it's this phrase, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word translated forsaken there in the New American Standard means to leave behind or abandon. So in essence, Jesus is saying, Father, why have you abandoned me? Now we know what that means to be abandoned. I remember a time when I was growing up, my mom had dropped me off at baseball practice. Baseball practice got done. I stood on the street corner there all by myself until it was long past sunset, pitch black outside. I don't know how long it had been. I'm just sitting out there waiting and waiting and getting to the point where I'm getting a little bit afraid. I walked all the way down to the corner thinking maybe I would see them come by, you know. Felt abandoned. I was scared. Mom didn't realize I wasn't there until they all sat down to eat dinner together and she went, where's Mike? (laughs) Mike's out in the field, you know. I felt quite abandoned. We know what that means to be abandoned, right? Well, there's no way to soft pedal this. Jesus is asking the Father, why did you abandon me? Which means the Father had abandoned him. Now, we don't like to think that. It makes us uncomfortable. Jesus wouldn't ask if that's not truly the case. Now, we have to accept the fact that ultimately the Father did not abandon Christ in the end because raised him from the dead. It's pretty clear. But at this particular moment, Christ was abandoned. The words that Jesus uses here are a direct quote of Psalm chapter 22. It's out of chapter 1. You can go read that. It gives a very insightful picture into into what Christ was thinking and feeling psychologically and emotionally at that point. It's a great thing to study. We don't have time to do it today, but I would encourage you to read it. Again, Psalm 22. Because it lines up exactly with what Christ was feeling at that moment when he asked the Lord why he had forsaken him. The most difficult part of these words is exactly what that means. How are we supposed to understand that? Rather than try to explain it myself, um, William Lane has a commentary on the book of Mark. It's actually um, one of the best commentaries you can get on the book. I love the way that he describes this. Now, it gets a little bit technical, but I'm going to read it to you because I don't think I could say it any better. But again, it gets gets a little bit technical. I'll read it uh, through here and see if we can sort of digest this. This is what he says. The sharp edge of his word must not be blunted, meaning Jesus' cry. Jesus' cry of dereliction is the inevitable sequel to the horror which he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. He must be understood in the perspective of the holy wrath of God and the character of sin, which cuts the sinner off from God. In responding to the call to the wilderness and identifying himself completely with sinners... Jesus offered himself to bear the judgment of God upon human rebellion. Now on the cross, he who had lived wholly for the Father experienced the full alienation from God which the judgment he had assumed entailed. His cry expressed the profound horror and separation from God. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a cross was a statement with which Jesus had long been familiar. That's a quote from the Old Testament. And in the manner of his death, Jesus was cut off from the Father. He had been cursed. The darkness 
declared the same truth. The cry of dereliction expressed the unfathomable pain of real abandonment by the Father. The sinless Son of God died the sinner's death and experienced the bitterness of desolation. This was the cost of providing a ransom for the many. The cry has a ruthless authenticity which provides the assurance that the price of sin has been paid in full, yet Jesus did not die renouncing God. Even in the inferno of his abandonment, he did not surrender his faith in God. That means trust, not faith in the sense that we would, but his trust in his Heavenly Father. But expressed his anguished prayer in a cry of affirmation. My God. My God. In other words, what he's saying there is Jesus Christ suffered as a sinner. Even though he wasn't. He experienced the full wrath judgment and alienation of God the Father that we would without Christ. But even in that, his faith, his trust, if you will, in the Heavenly Father did not fail. That term, my God, my God, is an important one. It's a term of affection and devotion. So while it is difficult for us to digest the theology of this, exactly what did that mean for Christ to be alienated? Some want to soften that. Well, he was God. How could he be separated from the Father? We're, we're not sure how to put all that together. We really aren't. There are just some things theologically that our mushy little heads full of gray matter can't always comprehend and fully understand. Maybe someday when we die and stand before Christ, we can ask him those deep theological questions. But the reality of it is we can't dumb it down. Christ suffered God's wrath in our place so that we wouldn't have to. And so his cry from the cross was about as real as it can get. For him, it may even be more real than it would be for us in the sense that he had had perfect unity with the Father. We never have. In fact, we won't until we're glorified. Paul says we will see him and understand fully when we see him face to face. Christ experienced that prior to coming, but then experienced that alienation that we should have suffered. Now, because he did this, we now can approach God with confidence and assurance. All three of the synoptic gospels record the tearing of the temple veil. Did you see that in here? Um, it says, and Jesus, verse 37, look at verse 37 and 38, and Jesus uttered, a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was a 30-foot veil. It's not just some sheet. This is a big, thick, heavy curtain. Now, it doesn't necessarily tell us who was there, but the fact that it was torn means somebody at least saw it. Either they saw it happen or they saw it after the fact. It would, clearly, the you know, chief priests walking into the temple would have seen this after the fact. So we just don't know if somebody was there when it happened live. But it says that when Jesus cried out, the point at which he died, we'll see that in a second here, this massive veil was torn into. Now, the Gospels don't really tell us the purpose of the veil being torn, but we do have a clue from the book of Hebrews. There were actually two veils in the temple. It's not really clear here which one it was. There was a first veil that allowed you to get into the temple. 
Some argue that that was the veil that was torn. There's a second veil that separated that from the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. I think it was that one. And they do that for a few different reasons, but the primary one is because of what we find in Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to turn there with me, if you will. Hebrews chapter 10. Go down to verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place... Now, in, in, in the book of Hebrews here, the reference here to holy place is referring to the holies of holies. Okay? It says that we have confidence to enter, basically, into the holy of holies, the most holy place of the temple of God. He's not referring there to the earthly temple, but rather God's temple, if you will, heavenly. By a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us, look at this, through the veil that is... His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, full of assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds for not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another with all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, what the author here is telling us is we now have this ability to enter into the presence of God because of what Christ did for us. But I love the fact that he refers to the veil and the veil being Christ's flesh. So if you you look at that and you look at the Gospels and the tearing of this veil, what we're left with is some symbolism. And it appears that the tearing of this veil sort of opened up the Holy of Holies. And instead of now having this veil that would separate the, the, the regular people from the Holy of Holies, the only ones that were able to go in were the high priests, and they used to tie a rope around the high priest's legs, or waist as he would go in, just in case he died while he was in there, they could pull him out. Sacred place, he couldn't go in there. Very few ever got to see the inside of the Holy of Holies. And what the author of Hebrews tells us is, you get to go in now. And normally you'd have to go through that veil, but the veil was there to keep us out. But now he says, no, it's been torn because Christ now, his flesh becomes the new veil to get into the Holy of Holies. And we are now able to go through that veil to get into the Holy of Holies. And so I think that the evidence would indicate that this tearing of the temple, or this tearing of the the, um, veil was that inner veil, not the outer one, the one that separated us from the Holy of Holies. But the symbolism was that Christ's body, his flesh, now um, replaces that veil. That he's now the entrance into the Holy of Holies for us. The last thing I think we need to see here is the response of the Roman centurion. Look at verse 39. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him, saw the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Now remember, Mark's two main points in this Gospel were to present Jesus Christ as the Messiah and to present him as the Son of God. He starts off the very first verse of the book. We see that the first climax comes about halfway through the book where Peter says, surely you are the Christ. This is the second climax, 
where this lone soldier is standing at the foot of the cross and he says truly this man was the son of God now it doesn't tell us exactly why but it does tell us it was because of what he had seen it says it was the way that he breathed his last now think about this for a moment you're a Roman soldier his job was to watch these guys die his job was to ensure that they were ultimately dead So this soldier likely had seen this on a number of occasions. He saw how men died. Now remember, they die from asphyxiation, exhaustion. They can't breathe anymore. They've gotten to the point where they can no longer lift themselves up to take a breath. How in the world might one speak? Let alone cry out in a loud voice. Because that's what Jesus did. The language here is that he basically shouted. For all to hear. Father, into my or into thy hands I commit my spirit, Luke says. And Jesus finishes with, it is finished. Those things are not recorded in the Gospel of Mark, but they're recorded other places. So as this Roman soldier is watching this, he sees Jesus take that last breath, able to somehow get himself up enough to fill those lungs with enough air to not just speak in a whisper, but to cry out. Father, I place my spirit into your hands and it's finished. And then collapse and die. Now, we know in Matthew chapter 24 some other things happen. Want you to turn Matthew chapter 27. Want you to turn there. I believe that what the soldier was witnessing, the reason he believed at this point that he was the son of God was probably because he realized this man had done something that no man should be able to do and clearly no man had ever done before. Matthew chapter 27, some other things happen that he may have seen. Starting in verse 51, it says, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. A couple of things there that take place. It says at his crucifixion, the ground shook, the rocks actually split. You might call it an earthquake. It might have very well been, or it may have just been a local, literally rock shaking and earth earth coming apart. But it says also the tombs were opened. These are tombs that are covered with big stones, things that are rolled in place. And this was all taking place at this particular moment. It does say that after the resurrection then, from within those tombs came saints that had died prior and sort of walking around as witnesses. You don't hear a whole lot about that. A little bit freaky. But some of the Old Testament saints were witness to the resurrection of Christ after he had been risen from the dead. They didn't come out until his resurrection, but their doors opened. The stones were rolled away. And so here's this Roman centurion watching these things take place. The ground shaking, the earthquake, the tombs opening up, the rocks splitting, Jesus on the cross crying out all of those things led him to make this declaration that this was truly the son of God and I think it's remarkable partly because what we have in Jesus or what we have in Peter is a Jew saying this is our Messiah and then we have a Gentile saying this is the son of God God told Abraham not just that he would save Israel the Jews but all the world, Gentiles, would be blessed. 
Jesus himself said. He didn't just came for the lost sheep of Israel. He came for all. Something else that's not really recorded here is Luke says that the centurion also said or began to praise God saying, certainly this man was righteous. He saw Christ for who he was. Stark contrast between this Gentile soldier and the Jewish people and leaders who were condemning, shaming, and mocking him. That's kind of remarkable, you know. Um, He came first and foremost for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. But the first real, I'll say declaration, if you will, of this was God's son, this was a righteous man, comes from the mouth of a Gentile. Rather shocking. We're going to go ahead and just wrap it up with that. Um, But I want to just focus us at one point. You know, we all know the John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's really what we see here. We see Christ himself, the God of the universe, with all authority and power, with omniscience, omnipotence, walk to the cross, willingly put himself on that cross, suffer excruciating torment, does it willfully, chooses not to save himself when he clearly can, because his purpose is to save us. Knowing that his death is a ransom for many. That's pretty remarkable. I think about all the world religions, I think about all of the different things that men and women on this earth have believed over the years, and there is nothing that even comes close to a God that would do that. That is so contrary to the way that mankind mankind thinks, is it not? Totally contrary tells us who this amazing Savior and God is. In some respects, why God demands so much of us, isn't it? And we are called on to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. We are, you know, Jesus said, you're my friends if you do what I command you to do. It's because of the price that he paid. You know, we live in a time where the phrase easy believism sometimes kind of says it all. You know, just say your prayer and you're done. No. It's accept Christ and then live for Him because of what He's done for us.